The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, often makes headlines when financial disasters occur. It also performs daily work of bank examination, policy development, and making banking data available to the public. Behind all of that, though, is the Division of Administration, which makes the whole thing keep going. For a behind-the-curtain look, we turn to the newly appointed director, Dan Bendler. Mr. Bendler, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. It's a real pleasure and honor to be on your show. And what's it like to be the unfamous in charge of the unseen parts of an agency that's often very much out there in the public, especially everybody uses banks? Well, as you pointed out, the FDIC has a very outward public-facing persona. But behind that, an awful lot of outstanding professional employees who make this corporation run who do all the behind-the-scenes work that turn the lights on, award our contracts, hire employees, provide our standard of living at the FDIC, and, and overall just make this a great place to work. And so to be in this position right now, to lead one of our support organizations in the Division of Administration, it's just very, very exciting. And you've been there a long time, and in that period of time, the nation has gone through a couple of banking and financial crises where maybe the resolutions numbers rise sharply and then fall back to normal. What's it like? Is it a roller coaster in there in the administrative office, or does it pretty much tick along regardless of what's going on externally? It's a combination of both. So we are challenged and have opportunities for our steady state operations. So during peacetime, where we are now, where banks are doing great and we have very few failures, we still bring on employees, we award contracts, we make sure our leases and facilities are first class. But, you know, we say here at the FDIC that readiness never takes a holiday. So even during peacetime, and, and should I say, especially during peacetime, we are preparing for the next crisis. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a financial crisis. It could be a cyber event. It could be a natural disaster. So within the Division of Administration, we never rest. We never can breathe easy. Well, we're always looking forward, always preparing for the next crisis. It strikes me that one of those crises could be a major bank or a chain in some city that is itself hit with a ransomware attack, which is an unusual type of situation that would invoke FDIC activity because it's not as if they made bad loans or somehow had a liquidity crisis. This would be something like a meteor striking a bank. That's absolutely right. So it's, it's a whole new world. And there are new threats that we never could have imagined even five years ago, much less 10 years ago. So repositioning ourselves and bringing on the type of talent, the quality, disciplines, and background to manage through these risks and prepare us to deal with those type of crisis, Tom, man, it's a little bit scary on the one hand, but it's also really uh, exciting. And it's just about being ready, you know, paying attention, making sure we're well-trained, that we're talking to our employees, that we're talking to our banks and other regulators so that we are well-positioned, well-poised to step in if needed. And I guess you've implied the answer to this question, but I want to ask it explicitly. The name Division of Administration could apply in any administrative part of any agency doing any mission. To what extent does banking and banking oversight and banking regulation and banking resolution, if that's needed, imbue into administration at the FDIC? So at the FDIC, and I know the Division of Administration has different names in different departments or agencies, but at FDIC, DOA 
encompasses the agency's uh, really four main areas. One, human resources, all things related to hiring, promoting, paying, uh, employees, benefits, all of the things that make us a, uh, a best place to work at the FDIC. So that's our benefits and our HR group. We also have contracting. The FDIC relies on goods and services to supplement our talent, our, our needs here at the FDIC. So we are responsible for procuring goods and services in the marketplace in a competitive way. And then we have our corporate services branch, and we handle in CSB our finding and acquiring the best lease space around the country for our regional and field offices and headquarters, security, making sure our employees are safe, simple things that you don't think about every day, office supplies, library services, that type of thing. And they truly are within our corporate services group responsible for FDIC's very high standard of living, which allows us to attract a very high caliber employee. And then we have a risk management uh, and audit resolution group as well. So it really covers the waterfront. Yeah, IT and the CIO is, is handled in a different part of the organization, but boy, we sure do partner strongly with those other organizations, with legal, with IT, Division of Finance, in a very collaborative way. We're speaking with Dan Bendler. He is the newly appointed director of the Division of Administration at the FDIC. And just tell us a little bit about yourself. You've been at the FDIC a long time. What attracted you to federal service and what keeps you with the FDIC? Well, Tom, I started my federal career at the Department of Treasury at the Office of Inspector General uh, as an auditor. And, you know, that was around the time of the SNL crisis. And I was so intrigued by that. Um, you know, I remember standing in line with my uh, grandmother at a savings and loan institution in Baltimore. She um, was trying to get her money and I uh, was extremely worried about that. So I transitioned from Treasury to the Resolution Trust Corporation, RTC, also uh, in the Office of Inspector General. It was a fantastic opportunity, great job traveling around the country, and then kind of gravitated around the agency, FDIC, when we merged with uh, RTC and worked in various roles, different capacities. And just I never would have imagined that I would have stayed in the same organization for as long as I have. But it's been such an incredible opportunity. The, the people, the challenges, the opportunities just really intrigued me. And, uh, you know, time goes by pretty quick. So here I am. And listeners can't see us talking over a video conferencing platform, but you are in the office I can see that federally issued furniture right there behind you and on either side of you. How has the pandemic affected the administration office of FDIC? In, in really quite a profound way. We have, like other agencies and departments, we, we've been mostly in a mandatory telework capacity, which means we've had to pivot on a dime and learn how to do everything that we're accustomed to doing here at the office remotely, onboarding facilities management. We still have to award contracts. And, and that's not something that we can simply put off, right? So uh, it really required us to be innovative, creative, resilient, look at things differently, and always move forward. We've relied heavily on technology, partnering with our other organizations to get the job done. And that has been the case throughout the FDIC. So yes, uh, today I snuck into the office for a change of scenery and uh, get away from my, my young dog who insists on playing constantly while I'm working at home. But most FDIC employees right now are either in a hybrid work environment or, or mostly working at home. 
Dan Bendler is Director of the Division of Administration at the FDIC. Thanks for joining us and thanks for taking us for that look behind the curtain. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, 
you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.